0: Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and issues concerning war, peace, and the environment. And today, we're going to devote the entire hour to the life of Albert Einstein. One hundred years ago, in the fall of 1905, Albert Einstein wrote down an equation which changed world history. We are, of course, talking about E equals mc squared, which unlocked the secret of the stars. And on exploration, we've had a number of programs devoted to Einstein's theory. Today, we're going to talk about his religion and his politics. Our first guest today is Mr. John Brinster. He is a former associate of Einstein, a graduate of Princeton University, also an associate of Werner von Braun and he's worked in physics, telemetry, and many other areas of science. And today we are going to be talking about Einstein's religious attitudes. And in the second half of exploration, we'll talk about its politics. We're going to rerun an interview with Fred Jerome, author of the book, The Einstein Files. In other words, Diego Hoover had literally thousands of pages of FBI files documenting Einstein's political activity. You know, many scientists do not want to talk about religion. They're so immersed in their day-to-day work that they really feel kind of embarrassed talking about God and religion. But Einstein talked to the press about God and religion quite frequently, perhaps not in the way you think. He talked about the god of Spinoza, for example, rather than the god mentioned in the Bible. However, he was very opinionated concerning his religious views. And, of course, his political views were quite well known, He was a pacifist, he advocated uh, the formation of Israel, he was against nuclear weapons, he was against nationalism, calling it the measles of mankind, and he took many vocal positions on the issues of the day, which earned him many thousands of pages on J. Edgar Hoover's hit list. So once again, today on Exploration, we're going to talk not just about Einstein's theories, but about Einstein's religion, as well as his political views. So our first special guest today is Mr. John Brinster of Princeton. He's a graduate of Princeton University. He's had extensive experience in physics, telemetry, was an associate of Werner von Braun as well as Albert Einstein. And he's written extensively about Albert Einstein's spiritual and religious beliefs. The first question for you is how did you first get to know Albert Einstein?
1: Well, Because I was a student at Princeton, I graduated uh, in physics in 1943, and he was in the community, and I moved uh, uh, within a block or two from where he lived at 112 Mercer Road, and uh, my family saw him quite frequently walking to the Institute for Advanced Study. My prime contacts were in symposia and meetings, uh, not so much on a personal level. I listened uh, intently to everything he said uh, uh, when he spoke, uh, but my interest in Einstein was in his mind and his uh, ideas of spirituality uh, as opposed to physics.
0: Okay. Well, sometimes Einstein, when asked whether or not he had a philosophy of the universe and God, would mention that uh, he believed in the god of Spinoza. Well, what is that? Uh, Could you explain a little bit about some of his um, religious and philosophical beliefs that seem to coincide with those of Spinoza?
1: Well, I'm not sure that I'm completely qualified to discuss Spinoza, although uh, Einstein did mention him on many occasions. What Einstein uh, uh, answered to the many questions that he was asked about spirituality uh, was basically specific. He was very uh, convinced of his position. Churchmen would ask him questions, write letters to him, and he would answer, those letters on the back of the envelopes in which the questions came, and they they were always directed uh, uh, to one thing, and that he did not believe in any personal God. He did not believe that um, prayer was effective, that there could be any response uh, 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 from p- prayer to a personal God. But he believed in a transcendental, uh, natural force, which he felt he could never fully understand. Uh, he, uh, he admired nature, he admired the beauty of nature, and he always used the word imperfectly uh, with respect to the understanding of nature. So, in effect, uh, I interpreted uh, his religion to be what I had written at times about a natural religion. uh, One in which uh, the forces of nature uh, were the forces of the universe, and uh, man being um, uh, very new in the universe, only a million years or so uh, old, uh, would, n- would never understand nature entirely.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about a little bit about Isaac Newton and other physicists. Um, Many physicists look at material forces, objective, material, mechanical forces that govern our world as set forth first by Isaac Newton. But Newton himself believed in God, not necessarily such a personal God that answers prayers, but a God that set things into motion. Now, Einstein, being a great physicist, whose laws actually replace those of Isaac Newton, uh, well, where in those laws do we see the hand of God?
1: In my opinion, uh, being very interested in the human mind and how it works, uh, of course, we knew very little about neuroscience, at the time of Einstein, but in time we learn more and more about it. And in the development of the human brain
2: uh, in
1: the process of emergence from the animal brain, uh, it's clear that the brain developed an area, the prefrontal area, of judgment, reason, and logic, which didn't exist prior to that time. And yet the animal emotions which humans inherited uh, uh, were uh, very powerful. And uh, my view is, and maybe I interpreted this a little bit from the Einstein view, uh, is that the period of Development of human logic is not yet ended. Uh, That is, we may only be halfway into the period. That is, logic, judgment, uh, and uh, reason are still developing in man. And uh, perhaps in a few more millennia, uh, we will see religion Quite differently.
0: Okay, well, let's talk about science and religion. Einstein once said that science without religion is lame, but religion without science is blind. So he loved to talk about God. He called God the Old One, the lawgiver, but in some sense, it was the God of harmony, uh, the God of unity, rather than the personal God that answers prayers and Uh, parts the waters and intervenes in the affairs of men and women. So could you explain to us a little bit about what is this God of Harmony, the lawgiver, as Einstein used to write?
1: Well, obviously he did mention God many times. He certainly uh, mentioned God informally in his uh, conversations with his fellow scientists. And uh, some of the uh theological people probably misinterpreted that to 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 relate to a personal god but uh i understand it as you do uh that his uh reference to god uh was the god of nature the god uh that followed all the laws of nature that man uh is attempting to learn and, and uh, survive by, uh, so that uh, uh, his, his God was essentially the God that I tried to define in this new book.
0: Now, Einstein once wrote a beautiful passage concerning how he viewed knowledge, science, and the entire universe in the following way. He said that if you are a child entering a library full of millions and millions of volumes, you are in awe of this vast storehouse of knowledge, and yet you can only pick up the first volume, and you can only read perhaps a few pages of the first volume, and yet in front of you is this huge library of knowledge. And in some sense, he said, the library is the universe. The library is a storehouse of wondrous facts, wondrous information, uh, wondrous equations, and we are the child. Humanity, all of science, is nothing but a child entering this library, able to only read the first volume and perhaps only a few pages of the first volume. So what are your thoughts concerning how Einstein viewed this great library of knowledge?
1: Well, I go back to what I Said before, that is uh, from the very beginning, uh, the human mind has developed a bank of knowledge. Um, one bit of knowledge is added to another, and much of this has been written down uh, according to the interpretation of the writer. Uh, all writing uh, hasn't matched perfectly, but uh, uh, humanity, in uh, in the uh, many uh, millennia of existence, uh, has, through the function of the mind, uh, drawn conclusions about the position of man and about the uh, the nature of the universe, and that all has been recorded and eventually has been sifted out and drawn to specific conclusions. Uh, your mind, for example, I understand, uh, has concentrated a lot on the complexity of the universe, of the multiplicity uh, of the 10 dimensions of string theory, and that sort of thing. I'm, I'm way behind you. I'm still uh, with Bohr and Heisenberg And uh, Wigner, Feynman, uh, Pauli, uh, John Wheeler, uh, you're a modern scientist. And uh, you are apt to see uh, things quite differently uh, with basically the same mind uh, that uh, Einstein applied to
2: his theoretical work.
0: Okay, well, would it be fair to say that in some sense there are two kinds of God, that we have to be more careful about the word God, that Einstein did not believe in the God of intervention, the God that answers prayers, the God that parts the waters, uh, the God that smites the Philistines. Not that kind of God, but the God of harmony, the God of unification, and that God then set the universe into motion. Would that be a fair statement?
1: Yes, that would be a fair statement, but you have to bear in mind that all those words that you bring forth are human words developed from the human mind uh, as the mind's interpretation of what it, uh, it acquires through its five senses. Uh, the, uh, uh, I, I often think that the uh, interpretation of nature uh, is uh, quite impossible because uh, the there is no language uh, in the human mind that's that's a very recent age that can apply uh, to the uh, to nature which has existed. Uh, essentially forever we haven't developed the uh, the language uh, to describe uh, the god of nature so to speak
0: okay now let's talk about where the universe came from in genesis uh genesis said god set the whole thing into motion now physicists have the big bang theory and the Big Bang theory simply set itself into motion for reasons we don't understand. But then people ask the embarrassing question, well, where did the Big Bang come from? Well, maybe perhaps there were many bangs. But then the other question is, even if you have many sequence of Big Bangs in a multiverse of universes, then where did the physics come from? Where did Einstein's equations come from? In other words, you go all the way back, even further than the Big Bang, to the laws of physics themselves. And at that point, Einstein would simply say, well, those are given to us by God. Now, this is not intelligent design. This is not the intelligent design of uh, certain people who dispute evolution and say that there's a hand of God uh, creating evolution in one way, uh, creating humans as, as, uh, as a watchmaker designs watches. However, we are left with this embarrassing question. If there is a unified field theory, the theory that Einstein tried to find that would allow him to, quote, read the mind of God, then where did the unified field theory come from?
1: Well, I, you're very right to question that, and it's a, certainly a difficult uh, question. I believe it goes back to the idea that I mentioned before, and that is the human mind has many limitations. Uh, it goes back to the very structure and function of the mind itself. The, the brain is a, is a, a biological mechanism. Uh, it's stimulated by uh, five senses. It, uh, the information that it, it acquires uh, goes through the hippocampus to uh, what we call memory and that memory is used as the basis for all uh, behavior and, and action. And uh, I'm not so sure that the human brain uh, is in a position yet to have sufficient understanding to, uh, to uh, explain any of that which you say. Uh, the human mind, again, is so limited, still, uh, being uh, no more than a million years old, uh, perhaps in another million years or so, uh, it may have developed further. There may be more neurons, uh, more complexity, more understanding. Uh, My my man who created God, was based on not only Einstein's idea of religion, but how, uh, uh, re- how a formal religion would be created if Einstein were uh, an aggressive religious leader.
0: Okay. Now, also, when Einstein was asked, uh, what is your goal in life, he said that his goal in life was to, quote, read the mind of God, that is have an equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, that would allow him to unify all the laws of physics. That was his goal in life. So, in some sense, if you were to ask then, what is the god of Einstein? The god of Einstein, in some sense, would be the unified field theory. That is, this one-inch equation from which everything springs, the Big Bang, the formation of galaxies, the creation of the planet Earth, All of these would be summarized into one equation, and from what I read of Einstein's work, God is either the unified field theory itself or the creator of the unified field theory. You think that's a fair statement?
1: I don't think it's entirely a fair statement. I I think the idea is a good one. Uh, I don't think that uh, Einstein... Really felt that there was an entity, a God entity, that would allow humans uh, to define the universe and its function uh, with a small mathematical formula. I, I, I felt that beyond that, he was uh, he he uh, assumed it was more complicated than that. You remember. Uh, that in his later years, uh, uh, he he said more about people of the existing world. Uh, he had uh, he he had great empathy uh, for people of the world, and he moved somewhat away from theoretical physics to uh, his concern. About people of the world, and in a sense the uh, the book that I wrote uh, says that we will never really understand some of the things that you question, and it might be a good idea for uh, the existing cultures of the world uh, to begin to decide on a unity of belief around nature, rather than a personal god, and get to the point where beliefs are more uh, more unified, and uh, uh, the uh, the matter of uh, of imaginative structure uh, that the mind engages in. Uh, is a deterrent to the develop to the natural development, uh, neural development of logic, and if I, I think he agreed that uh, if we could eliminate the uh, the imaginative side of religion, uh, the human mind would progress to much greater. Judgmental capability, people would agree. Uh, be, uh, there would be much more uh, universal uh, peaceful coexistence. That was that was constantly on his later mind. And okay,
0: <clears throat> and S- speaking about that, when Einstein was a child, when he was very young, one year he became extremely religious. He would cite religious texts. He would uh, actually write uh, hymnals to God, poems to God. And he would sing religious songs on his way to school and back. But then what happened was he read a science book. And the more he read about science, the more he realized that there was this vast discrepancy between what he learned reading these religious books and the books of science, which were reproducible, provable, falsifiable not just matters of faith, but matters of simply observation and experiment. So he saw this this fundamental conflict there. So do you think, therefore, that that is this fundamental conflict that every scientist feels that when we try to bridge the world of science and religion, that at some point a scientist realizes that natural laws can explain the universe much better than miracles?
1: You're absolutely right, and I should you that I had a similar experience in my life. I uh, was born and brought up as a Catholic. I served mass uh, at a theological seminary every morning at 5:30 in the morning until I reached a similar age, about the same age as Einstein did when he began uh, to think differently. The uh, uh, the right and ceremonies uh, did not match uh, modern understanding as knowledge developed. And I ha- I understand uh, his uh, experience in that regard because of my own experience.
0: Okay, now if you were to then look at the current debate, uh, a lot of people are debating about God today. God, the Bible, intelligent design. Uh, how do you think Einstein would view it if he were alive today? Would he be horrified that, uh, that fundamentalist Christians are trying to inject ideology on uh, biology classes? Um, and, of course, these fundamentalists also want to ban the Big Bang Theory. And the Big Bang Theory is nothing but a natural consequence of Einstein's theory and has been essentially verified looking at astronomical data so what do you think Einstein's reac- reaction would be looking at the current debate?
1: Einstein would be absolutely horrified at some of the discussions that are taking place uh, today, uh, especially in some of the more emotional new developments in belief. Uh, Einstein was absolutely firm with, in, in his belief. He never had second uh, decisions to make with respect to belief. He would be appalled at how uh, at, at how religion has penetrated cultures. Uh, to today, uh, culture and religion are so mixed up with politics uh, that one gets the impression that uh, the world will be in constant turmoil. Uh, Einstein tried to see through all that.
0: Okay, and any parting thoughts you may want to make concerning Einstein's spiritual side and his thinking about religion and God?
1: I think uh, his, uh, his feeling about religion and God uh, is relatively cut and dried. Uh, He didn't believe in a uh, a personal God. Uh, He didn't believe in prayer. Uh, He didn't believe uh, that uh, in the concept of a soul. He didn't believe in heaven and hell. Uh, He didn't believe in immortality. Uh, And I think that summarizes the Uh, his belief in a a nutshell.
0: Okay, well, thank you so much for being on Exploration.
1: I'm afraid I could go on forever in the detail. I hope you read my book
0: Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of Exploration. Once again, our special guest for the first half of the program has been John Brinster of Princeton, who's written extensively about the religious and philosophical and spiritual side of Albert Einstein. And our second guest coming on in a few minutes is Fred Jerome, author of the book The Einstein Files, talking about Einstein's voluminous political activities and his equally voluminous FBI file. Well, if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. That's 1-800-735-0230 for a copy of today's program. And also dial into my website. It's www.mkaku.org. MKAKU.org. And so far we've logged over 40 million hits on that website. So stay tuned now for the second half of exploration as we leave Einstein's spiritual side and go to Einstein's political side because this is the year of Einstein. In fact, it was a hundred years ago this month that Albert Einstein wrote down E equals M C squared and changed our universe. Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And this is the second half of Exploration. In the second half, we're going to switch gears a bit and talk about the political ideas and philosophies of Albert Einstein. You know, we all know the stereotype of this befuddled, absent-minded scientist who misplaced his socks and never combed his hair. But did you actually realize that politically he was a radical? Politically, there's no other way to explain the fact that he was at the forefront of social change, and he put his life on the line. He opposed Adolf Hitler, and as a consequence, the Nazis actually put Einstein's face on the cover of one of their magazines with a caption, quote, Not yet hanged, unquote. In other words, there was a price on the head of Albert Einstein, who spoke out against the Nazis. But he also spoke out against oppression, racial discrimination. He spoke on behalf of African Americans. He spoke for Jews. He spoke for people that he thought were the downtrodden. So once again, our special guest for the second half of the program is Fred Jerome, author of the book The Einstein Files, talking about the voluminous FBI files that J. Edgar Hoover kept on the genius Albert Einstein. Mr. Jerome, how did you first get interested in tracking down, of all things, Albert Einstein's FBI file?
2: Well, actually, it was about eight years ago I was doing a magazine piece on the media's coverage of Einstein, and I stumbled across a a Small reference in the New York Times, I mean, like page 17 of section D, right next to the weather map, which referred to the fact that the FBI had a file on him, and I was quite surprised and decided to go and and get it. And when I when I read that file, especially after I obtained the entire, virtually the entire 1,800-page file on him, uh, I. It was then that I realized that there was a tremendous amount of information there that we had been, that had, that had been denied to us. It was almost like a shipment of history that had been hijacked, and uh, I decided to write the book, which came out two years ago, "The Einstein File: J. Edgar Hoover's Secret War Against the World's Most Famous Scientist."
0: Okay, well, let's talk about Einstein's political evolution because his evolution, of course, spanned many decades. Yes. And he was there at very, very important pivotal events in world history and participated in some of them. So let's get back to his childhood. What was it going all the way back to his early days in Germany that led mm-hmm. to his rather rather accelerated political <laughs> evolution?
2: Well, it's he was born in, in, in uh, uh, 1879, and it was uh, he came of age, you might say, with both electricity and imperialism. Uh, maybe that would account for some of his scientific uh, uh, pursuits, that is the electricity. and imperialism maybe with his account for some of his political directions. Uh, he I mean the, the Kaiser the German Kaiser uh, said, uh, I think around the same year he was born, maybe a year earlier, the the great questions of the day will not be settled by resolutions and majority votes, but by blood and iron. And so you had the building up of this very militaristic Prussian society and a very militaristic Prussian army, which he, uh, and also there was at the time a lot of anti-Semitism in Germany. Uh, In any case, he decided to, to avoid that militaristic Prussian army by leaving the country.
0: Now, a lot of teenagers don't all of a sudden decide uh, (laughs) to leave the country, renounce your citizenship. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is a a rather dramatic statement to make. So was it that he was rebelling against Prussian militarism and conformity? Is that the reason why he decided to leave his country and give up German citizenship?
2: From I think primarily. I mean, he was in in school. He talked about uh, his reaction to school was that elementary school's Teachers were like sergeants, and, and high school teachers were like lieutenants. And, uh, I mean, he'd been rebelling against it for some time. It wasn't a sudden. Uh, he didn't wake up one day and decide that he was going to rebel. Mm-hmm. But uh, his family, uh, his parents actually were, were moving their business, which uh, there was also a depression at the time, and small businesses were having a difficult time, and so on. But he was able to move uh, to Switzerland, uh, about as easily as I think a lot of people during Vietnam were able to move to Canada, and fortunately was able to go to school there. And uh, when he went to the university in Zurich uh, around the turn of the century, just before the turn of the century, it turns out that there were a lot of uh, political refugees from from other countries in Europe also hanging around Zurich. And uh, that that so he he probably learned. A good deal of his politics in Zurich uh, at the Odeon Cafe, which was a popular gathering place for uh, radical Russian refugees and and others, like like, uh, Trotsky and Kolontai and and so on and so forth. Not that he didn't go to class, but sometimes he didn't go to class.
0: Okay, so here we have a draft dodger, Mm -hmm. uh, someone who renounces his own uh, German nationality. Mm Uh, tries to apply for Swiss citizenship, Mm -hmm. and then is right in the thick of some of the greatest scientific uh, turmoils uh, of the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then, of course, uh, there were war clouds also looming around that time. So, of course, he was very well aware uh, that as he became more prominent uh, in the world of physics, that world war could break out. Mm -hmm. So, uh, given the fact that at Berlin University, where he finally aspired to, when Uh, relativity theory finally bust uh, bust open on the scene, Mm -hmm. Uh, many of the faculty members at the University of Berlin uh, uh, signed a manifesto uh, agreeing with the Kaiser that this was the way to uh, support German civilization.
2: Most of them did, yes.
0: And so what did Einstein do, given the fact that there was all this war (laughs) hysteria surrounding his university?
2: Well, it's interesting. I think, uh, you know, when he went back to Berlin from, from Switzerland in early 1914, he probably didn't expect world war 2 to to break out. maybe it's a little bit i i like to compare it to canceling a a camping trip for a for a seat on the uh, uh on on a, on a ship that's about to be sunk. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh but in any case uh he did uh war did break out a few years after he got back to berlin. a few months after he got back to berlin, excuse me, in 1914. and he was one of really three Academics in Germany who refused to sign this this manifesto supporting the Kaiser's uh, attack on the uncivilized hordes. Uh, some of the words are, are much more explicit than that, and uh, called for uh, an end to the war and a united Europe. So he Uh-oh. was
0: really sticking his neck out at that point, right? You figure he was a, a Jewish physicist in a in a country that had was swept up by war fever. All the faculty were were uh, were going with the Kaiser mm-hmm. in terms of uh, enlisting for the military and working for the military. And here were these three intellectuals that opposed this gigantic tidal wave. Yeah, it was.
2: A, it was a. It, I think he probably had a little bit of immunity from attack. Uh, certainly, one of the other intellectuals was was uh almost arrested and was exiled from germany uh i think because he was einstein and uh had already had his miracle year and then in 1916 uh came up with the general theory of relativity or the 1917 um uh, to some extent they were they would allow him a little bit more leeway in what he said but uh, you never know how much you know and i think he was he was sticking his neck out to some extent Okay,
0: and let's talk a little bit about his political activities uh, between wars. Okay. Um, One thing I found out that I didn't know about was that the University of Berlin, after the chaos of World War I, was taken over by radical students. Yeah. And they had barricaded the campus and had actually uh, uh, taken the president of Berlin University hostage. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was this crisis between the Weimar Republic and the German students. Yeah. And the German students uh, wanted a radical professor who could negotiate a deal.
2: Yeah. And,
0: well, of course, everyone said, well, obviously uh-huh. it's got to be Einstein. Right.
2: Uh, Einstein actually, there, there are a number of versions of what exactly happened during that particular period of, mm-hmm. of uprising. But uh, it seems clear that Einstein basically supported the Weimar Republic at the time. Mm-hmm. And how much he was able to influence the radical students, is uh, I'm not sure, but it is on record that he he told them that they ought to support the Weimar Republic and give it a chance, and so on and so forth, um, which eventually uh, did happen. Yeah. I don't I don't think he was able to totally detour the the revolt. At, at just I don't think his words alone were able to detour. Detour the revolt. Right.
0: Well, Max Born, who was one of the founders of the quantum theory, mm-hmm. uh, actually accompanied Einstein on his visit to the students. Right. Uh, he went past the barricades. Right. Uh, where there were, you know, trash bins on fire and chaos mm-hmm. in the streets. And uh, here, we, here we have two Nobel laureate physicists right. <laughs> on their way to meet the radical students. And yeah. then after that, they went to the, um, the Reichstag, mm-hmm. and they met with the, uh, the Weimar Republic leaders, mm-hmm. and they began to broker a deal.
2: Yeah. And yeah. it led
0: to the release of the president of the poor university, mm-hmm. who was uh, captured by the students. Yeah. Now, also, one of the leaders of the um, Austrian Social Democratic Party, his son, right. assassinated Right. Uh, one of the leaders of the German government, and the assassin was actually a physicist. Right. A physicist who was actually a friend of Einstein.
2: They had become friends in Zurich, actually. Right. They uh, had been schoolmates.
0: Right. Uh, Professor yeah.
2: Adler. Right.
0: And normally you would figure that a physicist uh, who was a friend of an assassin would run for cover Mm -hmm. and basically try to protect their own skin by saying, I don't know this person. Uh, Who is this person who just assassinated a a German official? But here's Einstein uh, coming to his defense.
2: Yeah, he actually testified on his behalf and offered to and and, uh, really uh, maybe saved his life.
0: That's right. So yeah. we have this stereotype of Einstein being this kind of absent-minded professor. But if anything, he was razor sharp. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew the limits of how far he could push, uh, how far his fame could protect him.
2: Well, uh, I'm, gl- I'm glad you said that because that, that really is the key to, to my book and, and anybody who looks into Einstein's politics is that, is that, is that we have been handed down this, this image uh, in the last, certainly since Einstein's death, of a a sort of bumbling, absent-minded, kindly old professor with his head too high in the clouds thinking of abstract uh, equations to be concerned about what's going on in the real world, whereas the fact of the matter is he was quite concerned. And he continued to be concerned, and he was concerned when he was in this country, and he uh, opposed uh, McCarthyism. He was very outspoken, and he particularly opposed racism in this country. And uh, it's not at all the image that we have been handed handed down over the the last 50 years.
0: When I was growing up, uh, some people would say, when they mentioned his politics at all, they would say that he was naive, uh, that he didn't really understand the larger real forces at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if anything, to me, it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't see himself as a pra- pragmatic compromise maker that cuts deals in mm-hmm. a parliament. That was not his role. No. His no. role was to be more like a Gandhi, to, to set the, the spiritual and moral tenor of the affair. That was his role. And I think he was very clearly cognizant of the role that he would play in political crises.
2: Yeah. In fact, uh, we're skipping past a few things here, but it, uh, just to, to mention it, he was, he was asked to endorse and support hundreds and hundreds of organizations, uh and he actually did endorse and support i counted some 70 of those but each one was carefully thought through and many were rejected and it was it was those which he supported which he felt were the, going to be the most effective he lent his his prestige really to the cause of his moral and political indignation. Right. As has been said.
0: Right. Now let's move on a little bit. Uh, War clouds uh, start to brew once again as World War II approaches. Mm -hmm. And in 1933, Einstein leaves the country for good. And the newspapers say that the Pope of Physics has left, the new Vatican, is Princeton. Mm -hmm. However, the question is, what was Einstein's attitude toward the Nazis? Uh, Some pacifists uh, said that we should allow... Hitler to take power and show what, a, what an idiot he is, mm-hmm. allow him to do his dirty work? Well, Einstein said no.
2: Yeah, almost almost as soon as the Nazis came to power, and maybe even before that a little bit, his position, his pacifism, which he had, after World War One, he had become involved in pacifist organizations such as the War Resisters League and others around the world, um, His pacifism began to be, he began to qualify his pacifism because of the Nazis. And he felt that the Nazis presented such a horrendous threat to mankind um, that they probably could only be defeated through a military struggle. And uh, we know now that he wrote the the letter to Roosevelt in 19—this is skipping a few years—but he wrote the letter to Roosevelt in 1939 urging Roosevelt to consider uh, launching an atomic bomb project because he was convinced at that time that the Nazis had launched an atomic bomb project. And he didn't want Hitler and the Nazis to have sort of an atomic monopoly and be able to blackmail the rest of the world with the atomic bomb.
0: And as history has shown, Einstein's instincts, once again, were much uh, much more clear than mm-hmm. the so-called political realists. As we now know, uh, Germany did have a very active atomic bomb pro- project set right. up before the United States. We know that the world's greatest uh, quantum physicist, Werner Heisenberg, was the head of mm-hmm. the German Nazi program. And we now know, just within the last few years, That Werner Heisenberg did not sabotage the German project, but he actively worked on a German atomic bomb. So we have the world's greatest quantum physicist working for the Nazis to build a super bomb
2: Mm -hmm. for Germany. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think Einstein even after the war, because after the Germans, after it became clear the Germans, despite Heisenberg, were not were not going to succeed uh in in making an atomic bomb eisenhower I, einstein's uh, position uh changed and he didn't particularly he did not want the U.S. to use the atomic bomb.
0: Now, by the way, during the war, uh, a lot of people, of course, asked the simple question, why doesn't Einstein work on top-secret military projects? Mm -hmm. But apparently the military itself at that point uh, axed the idea that Einstein would work on the atomic bomb.
2: One of of the points I make in my book, uh, The Einstein File, is is that J. Edgar Hoover was instrumental in helping the military, uh, military intelligence, actually deny security clearance to Einstein in nineteen forty the same year he became a citizen and uh... and it was based on that denial that Einstein was unable to work on the Manhattan Project but Uh, isn't
0: it also true that J. Edgar Hoover was intimidated by Einstein I mean everyone around Einstein was grilled by the FBI except Einstein himself he was never grilled by the FBI and so some people speculate that maybe J- Jago Hoover was actually intimidated by Einstein.
2: Well, it's possible. Uh, I, I like to think of it uh, as not just intimidated by Einstein, but by the fact that Einstein had such a worldwide following that I think Hoover knew. And in fact, in the file, he makes several references to the fact, it, ordering his men not to interrogate Einstein, not to interrogate anyone who might tell Einstein that he was being asked about, because Einstein had this habit of calling press conferences and telling the world about these things. And so I think that what he was afraid of in the case of Einstein was that Einstein would tell everybody that the FBI was investigating him, and Hoover would look like the uh, ass that he was, and you know, a laughingstock of the world. Uh, so it, I don't think it was just Einstein alone that intimidated Hoover, but Einstein and his, his worldwide uh, following, which was so tremendous.
0: Okay, now let's take uh, a look at the post-war era. Mm-hmm. Uh, Einstein was asked after Hiroshima uh, would he have worked on the atomic bomb, and knowing what he did mm-hmm. uh, about what happened to Hiroshima, and he said that if he had known that his work would lead to the bombing of Hiroshima, he would have become a fisherman yes. rather than a theoretical physicist. Yes. So now what happens after the bombing of Hiroshima?
2: Well, I think uh, even, I just mentioned it, even before the bombing of Hiroshima, Einstein wrote a letter to Roosevelt, again, at at the behest of of, uh, Leo Szilard, urging Roosevelt not to bomb Japan. And it was found on Roosevelt's desk the morning after Roosevelt died, Uh, And so that there was this strong feeling among many scientists, Einstein included, uh, against the bombing of Hiroshima. Uh, after that bombing, many of the scientists who worked on the bomb, including Zillard and Oppenheimer, well, many, many of them, uh, data and, and, uh, and so on, formed a committee, or many committees, actually. The committee that Einstein became the chairman of was the Emergency Committee of Atomic Scientists. And they issued protest after protest uh, against the uh, growing nuclear arms race and they also spread information about the nature of nuclear weapons among the public to the public um, which has got the FBI terribly upset because the FBI was convinced they were going to release information about the atomic bomb and the Russians were going to read it and then the Russians would have the atomic bomb
0: now, I understand that in different versions, incarnations of these groups still exist. Uh, the Emergency Committee of Atomic Scientists no longer exists, but we have the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Yes. And that network, that network of nuclear physicists set up by Einstein still exists as the Federation of American Scientists, That's many correct. of them populated by nuclear physicists who worked on the on the
2: atomic bomb uh, during the Manhattan uh, Project years. That's correct, and, and Einstein... Articles were, I think, in the very first issue of the Bullet of Atomic Scientists. He had a, a piece and several others, and that still exists. And the, and the spirit, I think, still exists. The spirit of of reaching out to the public on these questions has uh, not been completely crushed.
0: Okay. Now yeah. let's talk about the McCarthy years. Yes. And once again, when uh, the waters get troubled, uh, there's a tendency for professors to run like hell and and hide under the covers. mm mm-hmm. And here's Einstein uh, going right up against uh, McCarthyism. Yeah.
2: So tell it, us a little bit about that. I think it may be that perhaps his greatest legacy to the future, or as great as any, I don't want to take away from any of his science, the legacy of his science, but but I'm not the first one to say this, an Einstein expert in, in, in Boston, John Stachel, who's the head of the... Center for Einstein Studies at Boston University has said this, that one of his greatest legacies certainly is his example of the courage that he demonstrated in standing up to the McCarthy committees and the other congressional investigating committees and urging people to refuse to answer questions. This is in 1953, uh, even if it meant going to jail. And that it was the only way to defeat these committees. And if enough people did it, the committees would be finished, and McCarthyism would be finished. And it was a call for civil disobedience at a time when it was—he was the first one to do that, really. And and the, was attacked for doing that, even by the New York Times and the Washington Post. And yet he did it, and it did have an impact on many people. Uh, within within a year, McCarthy was was on the rocks, and I think he was censored the next year, 1954. In any case, Einstein's call, uh, urging of witnesses to refuse to answer questions from these committees, it made the front page of the New York Times twice in one year, in, 19, in 1953, in June and in December. And if it made the front page of the New York Times, you can be sure it made the front page of, of newspapers around the world, Then, uh, as now. And that had a tremendous impact, I think, on the on the growing on the, the sort of turning around of the McCarthy uh, period. Although that turning around took a while to, to to complete.
0: Right now, let's talk about racism. Einstein, of course, uh, being Jewish, uh, was uh, had to bear the brunt of anti-Semitism, especially in Germany. Yes. Um, but also he was very involved with the African-American movement here in this country, which a- is not widely known.
2: Absolutely. Could I- you elaborate? Of, of all the little-known aspects of Einstein's political dimension, his, his anti-lynching and anti-racism activity is, is the least known. And in 1946, after World War II, there was a wave of lynchings that, that swept across America, especially the southern states, some 56 black men and women, mostly, GIs were, were lynched in this country, uh, compared to something like three in the, first, in the last year before the war. And Einstein spoke out against that, as he had on many other uh, issues. And in uh, September of 1946, he, he was co-chairman with Paul Robeson of a group called the American Crusade to End Lynching, which, which led a march on Washington in September to demand that the federal government pass anti-lynching legislation. Einstein wrote a letter to Truman. He was unable to actually attend the march because of his poor health. Uh, he also spoke at Lincoln University, a black college, the oldest black college in, in this hemisphere. Uh, he spoke there in 1946 in May, he received an honorary degree, and he, he, was, he generally did not do this during the last years of his life. He didn't go to colleges. He had many invitations. But he wanted to send a message, and, and the message that he sent in the speech was that racism was the worst. Well, he said in this speech, he said segregation was a white man's disease, and I'm not going to remain silent about it. And later on, he said racism was America's worst disease. And this, what's interesting is that this speech at Lincoln University in 1946, the most famous scientist in the world at the oldest black institution of learning in the hemisphere, not a word. Has been published in a single biography of Einstein anywhere, and that counts hundreds of books. And uh, it's so that the, it, it it's it's an example of the fact that this vital aspect of Einstein's outlook has been kept from us. And I think in in this day and age, especially, we all suffer as a result of, of not knowing it.
0: Okay, now let's talk about the Jewish question mm-hmm. because obviously he was, he bore the brunt of a lot of anti-Jewish slurs and mm-hmm. discrimination. Mm-hmm. But just before he died, uh, just before he died, being this world figure that he was, he was actually offered the presidency of Israel. Mm-hmm. So the question is, what was his position on Zionism and his relationship to Israel?
2: Actually, that uh, offering him of the presidency by Israel was a, was a very uh, clever public relations move. It got a lot of attention. Uh, in fact, uh, Einstein, when when they offered it to him, I have a, a quote here from, from uh, Ben-Gurion, which said that uh, uh, what are we ever going to do if he accepts the presidency? Because I've had to offer it to him because it's impossible not to, but if he accepts, he says we are in for trouble. And I think the fact of the matter is that Einstein was highly critical of the policy of the Israeli government and the Zionist leadership, of their policy, especially their policy towards Arabs. And at one point he wrote to Weizmann, the head of Zionism, he said, if we do not succeed in finding the path of honest cooperation and coming to terms with the Arabs, we will not have learned anything from our 2,000-year-old ordeal and will deserve the fate which will beset which will us and uh... another time he said the most important aspect of israel's policy must be our ever-present manifest desire to institute complete equality for the arab citizen liv- citizens living in our midst and uh... the attitude we adopt towards the arab minority will provide the real test of our moral standards as a people And there's more. I mean, uh, it's something that's not widely known, and and I I know that there are are Jews, some uh, in in this country, who don't like to hear this. But the fact of the matter is, there's a long, uh, a lot of statements like this. Uh, Einstein actually opposed the formation of the Jewish state uh, until after it was formed, and then he then he did support it.
0: Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, our special guests have been John Brinster, an associate of Albert Einstein, speaking about his religious points of view, and also Fred Jerome, author of the book The Einstein Files. And if you want to learn more about Einstein's theory and his life, you might want to pick up a copy of my book called Einstein's Cosmos. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. 735-0230. Also, dial into my website. It's www.mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. And so far, we've logged over 40 million hits on that website. Good day.